point of biblical wisdom, human life in relationship with God, uh, what it's like to live with God rather than apart from him, knowing uh, what God is like, knowing who he is, and being able to relate to him on his own term, terms, the way that he has set forth for us to live in a relationship with him. Uh, Ecclesiastes wants to teach us this wisdom that comes from God. And part of what he teaches us is that wisdom is not the road to discovering how awesome you are. The wiser you get, it's not that uh, the more you're discovering how great you are, right? If you pursue wisdom in order to feel better about yourself, well, it won't be biblical wisdom that you're pursuing. Uh, The wiser you are, biblically speaking, the more humble you'll be. And if you pursue biblical wisdom in light of the gospel, then it will humble you in good ways, in ways that lead to a strange kind of confidence uh, and ultimately lead you to love. So that's what we'll talk about from Ecclesiastes 7 this morning. Um, Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, by your spirit, we pray that you would please teach us your word this morning. Lead us, guide us to respond to your word faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, happy Mother's Day from Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Uh, It might sound a little rough there uh, at the end of uh, of that passage for you women, but I can assure you that Ecclesiastes is an equal opportunity offender. We'll come back to those uh, painful verses in a few minutes. For now, uh, let's start at the beginning of the passage. Ecclesiastes likes wisdom. That's who this is. When he says the preacher uh, is who is speaking. It's Ecclesiastes. The preacher is translating that word uh, that we, well, it's the Hebrew word koheleth, which is in Greek translated Ecclesiastes, which in English we translate preacher or churchman, right? So he's the, he's the preacher. He likes wisdom. If Ecclesiastes, if koheleth is Solomon, which there's a good reason to believe, then he is famous for his wisdom. That's what characterizes Solomon uh, above everything else, really. Uh, he's famous for his wisdom throughout history and around the world. He knows that there are great benefits and many advantages to wisdom. He says in verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So that's a pretty big advantage 
Uh, it's better to have wisdom than to have the city council in your back pocket, is what he's saying. That's the kind of thing that we're used to hearing from uh, the wisdom literature of the Bible. <clears throat> Solomon says in Proverbs, 11, or Proverbs 8, verse 11, he says that wisdom is better than jewels. And in Proverbs 16, he says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Job, another aspect of the wisdom literature in the scriptures, he says of wisdom that man does not know its worth. It's incalculable. It's precious. It's a treasure. Wisdom. Wisdom is to be prized beyond earthly treasures and worldly power. But, but then we get verse 20, which is something like a theme verse for this section, really. In verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. <clears throat> Feels a bit jolting, right? It seems maybe a little bit odd that Ecclesiastes would move so abruptly from extolling the benefit of wisdom to this jolting, rather depressing statement about the complete shortage of righteousness in the world. It's like he's saying, wisdom is so great. People are the worst. How does that make any sense? It's easy for us to miss the connection between these verses and think maybe Ecclesiastes has something like attention deficit disorder here, or he's rapidly changing subjects. I think that happens a lot in the scriptures where a biblical writer will move from one verse to the next and he'll lose us in the transition. The transition seems like a complete change of subject to us, but really there is a connection and we just might have to work at it and keep at it until we see it. It happens a lot in the scriptures and it's happening here. I think as we consider the larger passage, what Ecclesiastes is talking about here, we can see that these two verses, 19 and 20, they're connected. And I think that they're connected in this way. Ecclesiastes is saying, he's extolling wisdom, and he's saying, here is the wisdom that gives real strength for life in this world. This is the wisdom, the doctrine of total depravity. You want wisdom that's worth more than jewels, silver, or gold, incalculable wealth? You want wisdom more empowering than a whole city government at your back? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's priceless wisdom right there. The doctrine of total depravity. So the last several weeks in Ecclesiastes, we've talked about a lot of good Calvinistic, Reformed Presbyterian doctrines. Maybe we slipped them right past you because we didn't use the labels, the theological labels that they get. Well, you're getting a label today. The doctrine of total depravity is something that Reformed Presbyterians are notorious, not just for teaching, but for demonstrating. Because we like to lead by example. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Uh, as we put all our theological ducks in a row, decently and in good order, one of the first things that we often talk about is the doctrine of total depravity. And verse 20 is pretty much the definition of that doctrine. Verse 20 is the, the literal def definition of the doctrine of total depravity. The entire human race descended from Adam, every single individual human being is sinful, is unrighteous. In Ecclesiastes, uh, his search, his painstaking search to understand Wisdom, He says in verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. <clears throat> so God's original creation of humanity that we find in the scriptures is good and very good. In the garden, we were alive to God. We listened to God. We trusted him. We were on a path to join God and live with him in his great glory forever. And then the serpent came along. And we started listening to him instead, and we sought out his schemes for our greatness, which led to our ruin. And now, 
Rebellion against God is ingrained in our souls. Our hearts and our minds are infected with it. All our desires and our thoughts and our words and our actions are at best impure. So we're not saying uh, that every person is always committing the gravest, the most extreme, the most heinous crime imaginable. We're saying that without exception, everybody sins. Everybody violates relationship with God in thought, word, and deed, and cannot do otherwise apart from the grace of God. Even the lives of apparently good people are characterized by unrighteousness when considered from God's point of view. If our apparent goodness doesn't arise from a, a right relationship with God, as a gift of his grace through Jesus Christ on his terms, according to his word, empowered by his spirit, then it's not real goodness. Uh, as Paul says later in, uh, <clears throat> in Romans 14, <clears throat> he says, whatever does not pro- proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is not done from a, a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ is sin. So Philip Ryken says uh, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes that depravity is the one doctrine of the Christian faith that can be proven empirically. That's what Solomon, that's what Ecclesiastes says. He says, this one thing I found. Of all the things that I could have found, this is the only thing that I could find. Right? He, that's what his search reveals in verses 25 through 29. He's applying his great wisdom And his great perception to understanding humanity, and it's clear to him everywhere he looks, this is what he sees. He sees sin. He sees sinners. And we believe this doctrine not because it should be obvious to us when we look at the world, not even because it should be obvious to us if we're honest about our own hearts. We believe the doctrine of total depravity, as with all other doctrines of the Christian faith, because God clearly reveals to us what we are like. He tells us in his word. In places like this and in many other places. So we've heard these verses before over the years. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Romans 3, Paul says, as it is written, referring back to the scriptures, to some of the Psalms, wisdom literature, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Every single person. Whether it appears that way externally or not, this is what God says. Because fundamentally, total depravity, it isn't just about being a visibly bad person and doing things that hurt other people. That's not what total depravity is about. It's about righteousness and unrighteousness or wickedness as God defines it. As God defines it, not necessarily as we perceive it, but as God defines it, which means total depravity, it's about your relationship with him. It's about whether you receive everything that he says and do everything that he says with motives that are perfectly appropriate to who he is, perfectly appropriate to what he has done, whether you always and at every moment love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, which we've already confessed this morning we don't do. 
So Ecclesiastes' search, his experience, his observation of the world, it turned up this, verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I've not found. (laughs) Again, apologies on Mother's Day. But this is experiential language. This is observational language. This is what Solomon has found, right? Solomon would be able to say, from his point of view, I mean, he knew Nathan, the prophet, right? Maybe Nathan, the prophet. He knows maybe one guy who would be considered a good man from his perspective, according to his observations. Maybe say, relatively speaking, he could find maybe one, right? One. Sadly, Solomon would also be able to say that he knows a thousand women intimately. He literally had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And according to his observations, not even one in a thousand is righteous and pure. So it's a whole other problem this to discuss on another day, but suffice it to say the scriptures record Solomon's polygamy. They don't promote Solomon's polygamy. We're not going to spend much time on that. In fact, <clears throat> but the scriptures uh, show clearly how Solomon's Polygamy was sinful, how it directly contradicted God's expressly stated will, how it was ultimately destructive to his own soul, and how God's righteous punishment came upon him, and in fact the whole nation, for his polygamy. But as part of his anthropological studies, you could say, in his analysis of the thousand women that Solomon knew most intimately, every single one was a godless pagan who turned his heart away from God. Scriptures record that. So he isn't singling out one sex as especially unrighteous, right? He found one good man in a thousand, but zero good women. He's already said, he's already said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Like I said before, Ecclesiastes is an equal opportunity offender. Which means, in a sense, you should be offended. Whoever you are, male or female, whatever it is you should be offended by the sweeping indictment of total depravity that we find here and in all the scriptures. But in another sense, more importantly, I think, offending you is not the point of this passage. Offending you is not the point. Ecclesiastes does not accuse you of anything different than he would accuse himself if he's honest. I think we can see that in this passage. He isn't saying that everybody sins except for him, that he alone is good and righteous and pure. Unfortunately, that is the idea that you get a lot of the time from Reformed Presbyterians who they weaponize this doctrine. We can do that. We can take the good doctrines of Scripture and we can turn them into weapons to bludgeon people with. We might cut others down by how we talk about total depravity in order to feel right. In order to feel right over and against those who are obviously wrong and need to be put in their place. Or to feel good about winning theological arguments or whatever. We can easily pursue wisdom even sound biblical theological wisdom in order to bolster our pride, bolster our self-confidence. But that's an abuse of this doctrine, as we find it here in the scriptures. It's a corruption of the humble wisdom that Ecclesiastes really is promoting here. It's the result of, you know, when we do things like this and seek wisdom for our own pride, for our own self-confidence, that's a result of the reality of total depravity. It just confirms further this fact 
that, that we cannot escape the depravity that resides inside of our own hearts. Sadly, it's a demonstration of the doctrine that we're teaching. But God intends to tell us the truth. This is why. Not just about all those other bad people, doctrine of total depravity indicts, but the truth about ourselves so that we would know what we're like, so that I would know what I am like. This is why he tells us. God tells me the truth about my own depravity, ultimately so that I would know my own need for God's grace, that that's the only way for me to survive and live in a relationship with God, so that I would find my confidence and strength in God instead of in myself, so that I might better relate to others in love rather than despising them as if they were totally depraved and I were not. The doctrine of total depravity is so that I can better relate to them. So here's a wonderful example of how this works. These verses are amazing. Verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. There's so much to think about here. One thing that Ecclesiastes is saying is, look, don't be taken aback. Don't be shocked and dismayed and astounded and surprised when other people sin, when other people sin against you. Don't be surprised. You're a sinner too. You know what it's like. You know this is a world filled with people just like you. We often say Christians should be the least shockable people in the world precisely because of our doctrine here of total depravity, because of our own intimate familiarity with the problem of sin that resides in our hearts. Ecclesiastes is also saying, you know, not just be, don't be surprised when other people turn out to be just as bad as you are. He's saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of what others say about you. You don't have to take it personally. You don't have to take it to heart. Even if they curse you, their sin is directed toward you. You don't have to become bitter. You don't have to become vengeful toward them. You don't have to be afraid of them. You don't even have to care what others think. You don't even have to care about their opinion and what they say about you. Uh, I like how Joe Pope often puts it. He says, what other people think about me is none of my business. Fact check. True. What other people think about you is none of your business. It's so true. It's so good. It's tremendously freeing to live this way, not worried about what others think or say about you. We've all known the distorted version of that, right? The the grumpy, abrasive people who basically curse everybody else and say, I don't give a rip what they think about me, you know? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about dehumanizing or disregarding other people in order to convince ourselves their opinions don't matter. I'm better than that. We're talking about a freedom from their opinion that helps us to love them, actually. When someone curses me, they're saying something from a heart that wants to hurt me, and the normal reaction would be to reject that person in return, to hurt that person in return. But the doctrine of total depravity allows me to say, at least in my own heart, if somebody curses me, friend, you don't know half of it. Let me tell you all the curses that I deserve. When someone curses me and speaks evil of me, I can, I can understand why they're doing that. I can relate. I know what's going on inside their heart. Same thing's going on inside my heart. My own heart knows that many times I myself have cursed others. This is emphatic language. 
So I can't condemn others. I can't reject others for cursing me when I've done it myself. To the contrary, I can so relate to those who curse me that I can even have compassion for them. I can have compassion for them as I would have compassion for myself. Surely you can relate to unrighteous people. Surely you can relate to sinful people. You know from experience that it's a miserable way to live with a heart that curses people. You know what it's like to be so unlike Jesus. You know what it's like to be so out of fellowship with God that you would gossip or slander or curse. You know how lamentable it is to live that way, and you can begin to care more for the person who curses you than you care about how your pride was stung by their curse or whatever indignation you might have from hearing it. And this is in large part because of believing the Christian doctrine of total depravity. Surely there is not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. Not me, not that person who cursed me. We're in the same boat. All of us together. And this is especially true of us in the church, those who are in Christ. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in a a beautiful way in his book, Life Together. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother the very moment when I hear my brother curse me and sin against me becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, doctrine of total depravity, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The doctrine of total depravity is, is part of what binds us together. The heart of what binds us together is Jesus the whole truth about him and his gracious salvations. When someone curses me or sins against me in any way, far from it being cause for me to hate and curse that person in return, in Christ, it's an opportunity for me to acknowledge what I share with that person. It's an opportunity for me to acknowledge and connect my shared total depravity with that person. My heart knows that many times I've sinned against others, and it's also an opportunity for me to celebrate. We're not celebrating the total depravity. We're celebrating the the total forgiveness of of our depravity, my depravity. Because the whole point of the Bible's teaching of this doctrine of total depravity is to spur us on to receive the total forgiveness that's found in Jesus. The belief that truly I am depraved in God's sight. I mean, if you sit with that, long enough, it's absolutely devastating. And it's impossible to endure apart from Jesus. The only thing that makes this belief even bearable, that you could confess it and think about it at all, is the knowledge that in spite of God knowing you inside and out, in spite of the charge that's been leveled against you and against me, God sent his son Jesus to the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. accepting this Savior 
believing this Savior, trusting this Savior, embracing this Savior and his forgiveness is the only thing that truly frees you to confess your own total depravity in ways that help you to relate to others and to care for them and to respond to their sin with love. So that's the point of our scripture reading uh, earlier, our New Testament reading that Tim read from Titus 3. I'll, um, I'm going to read it again. Um, <clears throat> at least most of it. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right, so in other words, love other sinners, speak evil of no one, have perfect courtesy toward everyone, love other sinners because you were a sinner. You're just like them. And Jesus loved you and he forgave you and he blessed you when you were a sinner. When someone gossips about you, when someone slanders about you, when someone curses you, whether the things they say about you are true or false, or however malicious they are, you don't have to take it to heart. The main reason we tend to take it to heart is because it feels like a threat to our, our, our righteousness. It feels like a threat to our perceived self-righteousness. If anyone is a threat to your self-righteousness, it's God himself. And he absolutely dismantles your self-righteousness when he levels the charge of total depravity. But you don't even have to be afraid of what he says of you. You don't have to be afraid of God's opinion of you. You don't have to be afraid that God's curse would destroy you because Jesus, who's the true one in a thousand, one in a million, one in billions, the perfect, the only one righteous man who ever lived, he went to the cross to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. And now, the word of God that stands over you, only through your union with Jesus, the word that stands over you is forgiven, accepted, beloved, righteous. That's the word that hangs over you. If this is how you hear God speaking about you in the gospel, because of Jesus, in spite of your total depravity, forgiven, accepted, beloved, righteous, then what can it possibly matter what some other person says when they curse you? God's opinion of you is your ultimate reality, whatever others might say or think about you, whatever you might even think about yourself. God's opinion of you is the ultimate reality. And knowing God's declaration that you are righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, that gives you the confidence about your relationship with God. It's a confidence in him, a confidence that comes from him, not a confidence in yourself. This is the humble wisdom that frees you from worrying about the opinions of others, frees you to confess your sins, frees you even to sympathize with those who are hurtful to you, even as Christ has loved you and had compassion on you. This is humble wisdom, this stuff that Ecclesiastes gives us. 
This is the humble wisdom that gives you real strength for life in this world. It's worth more than any riches. So get this wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in our relationship with you through faith in Jesus. By the power of your spirit, help us to trust in you in ways that enable us and strengthen us even to know the truth of our own depravity. Help us to have this strength and this confidence in you so that we can be free from the opinions of others, so that we can be free to love them, even those who hurt us. We'd be free to love them in your name in spite of their sin and in spite of our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.